And I don't say it lightly or flippantly, but I genuinely would rather go through uh, the experience that I had with my cancer and my treatment uh, than I would go through those two years of, of COVID and the disruption which came from that. It's often the people that you find that are happiest in life are not the ones who have had the easiest lives. They're not, they're not people that have kind of skated through without having any significant adversity which they've had to face. Self-doubt and, and self-criticism, I mean, they're, they're all very normal parts of the human experience, as is all forms of adversity. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Back in 2015, Jake Bailey was head boy at Christchurch Boys High School and he was getting ready to graduate when doctors diagnosed him with stage 4 Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the deadliest cancer known to man. Jake was given two weeks to live, but he refused to give up and he presented the graduation ceremony from a wheelchair and literally captivated the hearts and minds of millions of people around the globe. The speech went viral and has now racked up a massive 50 million views and a presentation that I was blessed to be sitting in the ball. In fact, I was on Jake's table and the Tour de Cure ball has also been watched over 30 million times. Not only did Jake survive, he has gone on to thrive, becoming an internationally renowned speaker, the youngest number one best-selling author in New Zealand's history and a passionate educator on the power of resilience. Seeing firsthand the powerful impact that resilience had on his own life, both during and in the recovery process after cancer, Jake's journey is teaching people how to live. He is an official ambassador for two charities, the Maya Health Foundation in New Zealand and Tour de Cure in Australia. He's got a dog called Bowie and he's my regular Gold Coast cycling buddy and we've got him here today in the podcast. Jake, welcome. Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much, Maisie. Glad to be here. You've got the puffer jacket on. I'm here in Sydney. It's a Sunday day. You're in Christchurch. Is it a bit cold? <laughs> Have you got the air conditioning pumped up? Yeah, it, it is a chilly day here in Christchurch. I'm from Christchurch, of course, and I'm sort of decreasingly acquainted with this wintry weather. As I spend more and more time in Aussie and on the Gold Coast, I basically think I'm getting softer and softer as the years go on because Christchurch seems to get colder and colder earlier in the year when I'm back here. So I'm I'm rugged up, that's for sure. Well, the resilience boy, we've got to toughen you up a bit. When when you're in Sydney next, we'll go do we'll do some we'll get Dano Gladstone, we'll go do some ice bath and thermoregulation control. You're you're young, yeah. you're fresh, you're a lot funkier and cooler than me. You you can't be getting cold yet, mate. <laughs> well, I'll try my best. We'll see how, we'll see how we go. <laughs> uh, a lot has changed since we last spoke in the podcast format. It was NAB Business Fit. At that stage, both of our respective speaking careers, an affectionate term, they were down the toilet. Remember, yeah. that it was tough, wasn't it? And then you went online, you were doing a program with kids. It was just, it was a struggle, that period. I'd, I'd never yeah. want to go back to it. No, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I've said it to a number of people since that time. And I don't say it lightly or flippantly, but I genuinely would rather go through uh, the experience that I had with my cancer and my treatment uh, than I would go through those two years of, of COVID and the disruption which came from that. And uh, I know that I'm far from the only person who was significantly affected by that time. And I'm certainly not the person who was most affected by that time. Many people face incredible life-altering challenges throughout that, but it was just 
such prolonged and significant adversity. I guess the flip side of that is that it really has drawn a lot of attention towards how we can prepare people to face these challenges, these inevitable challenges that come our way. So um, it's been a really cool opportunity off the back of that to to work with people and to try and equip them with some of those skills that we know enable people to be to be resilient. It surprises me hearing you say that you would, because I've, I've never heard you say that in any other format. That's a big call because go, going, oh, going through cancer, and we will talk about that in depth today, and those figures, 50 million views. Like, when, when I say that, does that feel real? Does that feel like you? Or is it almost an out-of-body experience like this other guy you know who looks like you and was a, you know, a bit younger back then? Yeah, 100%. Well, the speech and, and all of the attention and publicity which came about as a result of that has always had a sort of disconnected quality to it for me, simply because at the time I was so uh, so sick, so unwell, and on such strong medications that for me, uh, even, even in the immediate aftermath of having given that speech, it was a little bit of a blur. Um, I recall bits and pieces of it, I have to say in all honesty, I don't recall a huge amount of that time. Uh, I remember a few, yeah, a few specific instances and a lot of stuff around the peripheries of it. But in terms of actually having given that speech, to look back now and to see the footage, um, to see what other people saw from the outside, I've never really associated that with kind of uh, with kind of myself. It, it has felt in some ways like a surreal, bad '90s or early 2000s Hollywood movie where you wake up in someone else's life. Uh, it's almost like I've kind of had the the opportunities which have come about as a result of something which uh, someone else someone else did, and, and I've fallen into that life. But I'm very very grateful for the pathway that it's taken me on. That's for sure. Have you found that with other people? Because as you're saying that. I, I don't remember a lot. There's a three-month period in my life when I had melanoma. It was back just before my daughter, Michaela, was born. She's now 14, so I judge it by her age. And I had an excision on my left shoulder, had a few lymph nodes removed. And I, I actually don't remember anything about that block after that. And I've got a good memory for recall. So do you, do you think that's a coping strategy, that you are just so focused on getting better and the stress that's running through your veins, it's all just immediate, immediate, immediate. So obviously you don't remember much. Have you found this with other people and have you dug into that a bit more? Yes, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of research around the impacts that stressful situations and adversity have on people's ability to form long-term memories and their, their recall of that down the line. And there's a lot of really fascinating interplay between that and the processing of experiences, which ties into a lot of what we know about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder um, in terms of people coming through traumatic experiences and, and failing to be able to uh, process those into memories. Amazing research, which you can look into around that. For me, I, th I think what I recall of that time and what I recall of my treatment, a lot of it is really positive things. Um, and whether that's because that's the way that, that, that humans are primed, we tend to have rose-tinted glasses and look back on things with a fairly optimistic outlook. Well, I, I don't believe that's the case in the circumstance. I think that genuinely for me, the support that I had, the people that I had around me made my treatment a really positive experience. Uh, and I feel, feel very grateful for that because without those really positive memories, there would be certainly a, a lot more uh, more challenging ones or negative ones, which could be my primary reaction or or uh, yeah, association with that experience. I'm still surprised though, that you would rather go through treatment on stage four Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma than go through COVID again. That's a big, big call. 
Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting. And it probably speaks in some ways maybe to uh, how I was primed to face the challenges differently. Probably speaks to maybe some of the struggles and, and a lack of resilience, which I had during COVID and throughout that time. Um, and as I say, I don't, I don't say it lightly. And I, I, I say it with a, an understanding and a recognition of just how fortunate and lucky I have been to get through my experience of, of cancer and to come out the other side as healthy and as well as I am now. I certainly don't apply that to other people's situations or stories at all. But for me, yeah, I think that getting through that time was was easier with the support that I had in place around me and some of these strategies and tools which I, I drew on, as opposed to a lot of the loss of purpose and a lot of the loss of meaning which came from COVID and an inability to do the work which yeah, formed a large part of my identity, perhaps, and, and which I was over-reliant on for uh, meaning and purpose and connection within, within my life. So going through that experience of COVID, as it has for everyone, has certainly taught me a lot about a lot about that. You hit it well because when the borders did open up, I was up on the Gold Coast a fair bit with my mum and dad and my family, and we did a few bike rides. So is it just that we chose Healy rides and we weren't able to talk much, or were you holding it back? Because I, I, I knew you weren't your you know, normal eight or nine out of ten, so I thought you were a little bit flatter, but I didn't realise it was it was that that challenging for you so was it the hills we chose next time better route so we can have a more informed chat or were you were you holding it in a little bit yeah i think i was definitely probably holding it in and in a lot of ways i probably wasn't even necessarily aware of some of the um, underlying drivers of, of why COVID had been so challenging for me. As I alluded to there, I think uh, probably an, an unhealthy degree of, of my identity and, and what was meaningful to me in my life was built around this ability to uh, to go and speak for, for organisations, companies, schools, and to work with people face-to-face. -face. I think I was really reliant on that connection for yeah my sense of, of purpose and achievement in my life. And I think for for a lot of people I've, I've spoken to, uh, one of the things which COVID has given them is a, a re uh, a reevaluation or an opportunity to reconsider around uh, what matters to them and where work fits within that, and where family or other elements of connection fit within that. And it's certainly the experience which I had. When I talk to you, I often feel, God, I've got to do more. This young guy, he's so balanced. He's so grounded. We, as we said this after the NAB Business Fit interview, like how can one man just be so articulate? Do you have shit days? Do you have days where you can't write, can't speak? Does your lovely partner ever call you an idiot and just say <laughs> you don't do stuff? Or, I, I, or have you always been in that sweet spot? No, 100%. I, know, I think that's that's completely normal and that's something which everyone experiences. I definitely experience all of those things and more as well. I mean, self-doubt and, and self-criticism and um, not always backing yourself and, and all of these different things. I mean, they're, they're all very normal parts of the human experience as is all forms of adversity. And I guess that's what has drawn me to uh, the study of resilience so much and, and to trying to communicate to people how we can best prepare them for adversity is the fact that adversity is just the only universal and, and unifying experience that we have as, as people, as humans. Um, I think that that's what's so powerful about trying to prepare people to overcome it. I like the new website. It's crisp, it's fresh, it really positions you and what you do, the presentations you do, the books that you write, the documentary. It's a great documentary as well. And there's a line that I love. And I know to get brevity often takes a long time. And the line is, Jake's journey is teaching people how to live. Mm. That's it, right? Yeah. 
Uh, hopefully. And and I mean, it's interesting. It's not the kind of line that I would have written for myself about myself. And maybe that's a little bit of the Kiwi sort of thing coming out within me. I'd be very slow to try and um, suggest for a moment that, that there's anything unique or special about, about me, about my story, because my story is in- incredibly common. There's nothing unique about my story. There's nothing unique about my passion to try and, and work with young people and help help young people or, or, or businesses in general. Yeah, I'm just going to um, do a quick interjection there. Rubbish. This is this, <laughs> a, this is a Kiwi thing. So uh, we interviewed Owen Eastwood yesterday for an upcoming podcast. Owen's a fellow Kiwi buddy of yours who's now over in the UK working with the English football team, working with teams around the world, NBA teams like rock stars, uh, directors like royalty – amazing and he just said oh what i do is not that special that rubbish another good mate of mine aaron walsh who's a, a fellow kiwi and while she works with the chiefs in rugby and he now works with a scottish rugby team one of the world's leading mental skills coaches and he's like oh i'm just doing a little bullshit bullshit all three of you <laughs> i'm gonna redo your marketing I can't get over it. With 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 if I if I said to you, Jake Bailey, I've had a presentation I did that has now had over fifty million views. Oh, by the way, BTW for your young trendy punks. I did another one at the TDC ball on the table that you sat with me. That's had thirty million. What would you say? <laughs> what would um, you say if I said that was me? <laughs> Like as a young as a young Kiwi guy, I would say, man, it's a it's a lot of people for a, a guy from a country with five million people only. So I suppose that it's you know my story's been uh, unique in that regard in terms of the reach and impact, certainly. But I mean, for for me in my situation, um, I've just been incredibly lucky. That's that's been the one common theme throughout my story and all of the experiences that I've had from uh, the cancer, the speech, and the attention that that received, and the opportunities that I've had subsequent to that to be able to go and to work with people and hopefully to try and positively impact them in some way. All that has unified it is that I've been really fortunate and I've had some amazing people to walk alongside uh, through all of those journeys so you, you won't get me to, to back down from that but I appreciate your, your your kind words because that line that headline of the website was actually one of the things which was on the chopping block it came across from the last website um it was a line which was it was actually put together by Saatchi and Saatchi which is probably why it's got that element of brevity ah um, now gotcha so you've had the marketers come in good it was it was it was done it was done a while back with them and it was on the chopping block very much in the website redesign uh because I don't know if it, it does align with that with that key with them but as I try to ex- expand out more globally then yeah something which I identified would probably read a little bit better on an American stage than it might in a New Zealand one. But I appreciate it. Thank you. I, I love the humility. When you write and then bring out your next book, because there is sure to be one in the production line soon, let me help you on the positioning on that, right? And and I mean that with respect. Or, or go back to Saatchi and Saatchi, because you've got to get out of your own way on that. And especially now you're going a global audience and doing bigger work. You've actually got to amplify for the audience. I get it. When I hear someone read out my bio at times, in fact, I had a longer bio that people would read out and I'd walk in and go, oh, that's enough. I, I'm over it. <laughs> and, I, and I had a, a an organiser one day say, Andrew, don't do that again, because even though you're doing it with a bit of humour and it's slapstick, you're actually downgrading what you've done and other people want to know that. I'm mean, oh, okay, but I'm going to give you a shorter bio next time because I don't want to hear everything. <laughs> be yeah. like, blah, blah, blah. All right. Yeah. What, what are you doing now? If you look at your diary, what's it looking like? Very different to what it was during COVID. What are you excited about in the next month or two? 
So, I mean, my real passion is, is working with people face-to-face and obviously the, the COVID experience was yeah, a real challenge in that regard. And, and it's actually, I guess the COVID experience was probably the realisation moment of that to some degree as well. During COVID, I was still really privileged to have the opportunity to present and to work with people online and through online programs, but uh, realised that the the engagement and the face-to-face connection, the opportunity to have some really cool conversations with real people, looking them in the eyes, I think that that's sort of what I'm passionate about and what I enjoy most about my work. So in terms of what I'm doing now, um, I'm back in NZ currently because I'm, I'm here doing a tour, working with a range of clients back here. I spent about four months of the year back in NZ last year working with, with clients. So I spend a lot of time away and, and on the road engaging with, with various teams. And that's really what the rest of the year looks like for me. I've got a bit of a break, well, a, a sort of a break over, over June. I've been really privileged to be invited to something called the Commonwealth Study Conference in Canada that was established by uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, back in 1956 at Oxford University. And the idea is to bring together 300 emerging leaders from across the Commonwealth to uh, give them an incredible networking, personal development and, and learning opportunities. So I'll be heading to Canada for, for the month of June to... Um, to, to partake in that. And then aside from that, the rest of the year looks like a, a really chocker back-to-back, various speaking tours with intermittent breaks and, and opportunities for some downtime. That sounds pretty cool. But what do you do? Do you talk posh because it's Commonwealth and it's backed by royalty? Do <laughs> no. you have cucumber sandwiches? They, they, they reel out the corgis? And- I'm, I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm not entirely sure. We do have Princess Anne coming along, and we have the opportunity to to present to her on our learnings and discoveries from the uh, from the conference. So um, I'll have to be on my best behaviour. My my grandmother used to reproach me that I used to, to eat at the dining table with my elbows on the table. She said that you'll never be able to dine with royalty if you keep leaving your elbows on the table at dinner. Um, so now I have the, uh, she's unfortunately passed since then, but I uh, will have, hopefully one day have the opportunity to uh, to tell her that. In fact, I did get to, to dine with royalty and I, I may even leave my elbows on the table when I do so. <laughs> I'm sure your grandmother is looking down and she's proud. It's interesting, isn't it? The lines that we remember from our grandparents. My grandmother, Bonnie Flynn, her husband, Patrick Flynn, good Irish heritage there. I remember Nan saying to me, young man, be careful that the toes you tread on today connect to the ankles that support the knees that connects to the ass that you just might need to kiss next week. And it was like, (laughs) Nan. So she was saying, be very careful of the ripple effect, the ramifications of your behavior. And it was so profound. And I remember it. And I'll have to get my mum to listen to this. I don't think my mum's ever listened to a podcast, but now we're reflecting on grandmothers. We'll get her to absolutely listen to this. But I I often think of those words from Nan and a few other ones. So it's beautiful messages, isn't it? That those role models and and family give us along the way. Absolutely, 100%. And uh, I think that the previous generations have been real repositories of little nuggets of wisdom like that. That's for sure. There's a lot of lot of learnings and lessons which I've taken away from, yeah, from 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 family and and also from other um, yeah older generations. I've had the privilege to work with over the past couple of years. Speaking of lessons, what what's different now about your business, your business model, the way you sell, the way you speak, uh, even the way you run your personal life following COVID. Yeah, sure. So as I touched on before, I mean, working with people in person is really where things are at for me. And uh, whereas previously I would look to 
certainly be happy to do online or, or virtual engagements. Now I'm really passionate about coming along and working with people in person. I've just seen over the past couple of years that often the, the, the meaningful breakthroughs that you make with people, those meaningful connections are sparked by things which go on around the peripheries of, of presentations. Often it's the conversations, the private chats that you have with people afterwards. I always feel really fortunate that I guess with me being so open and sharing my story and, and sharing the adversity that I've been through, that people feel very comfortable to come up to me and, and to, to chat with me about some of the things which they've been through, the, the challenges which they've faced, the adversity which they've overcome, and some of the lessons and learnings that they've had as a result of that. And so for me, uh, I don't want to miss out on those opportunities anymore. I'm really, really keen to um, to make the compromises and the sacrifices which are needed to enable me to be there in person, to work with and engage with people, uh, because I, I massively enjoy that. Aside from that, I've, I've done a lot of work within schools over the last 12 months. Previously, my work would have been perhaps 50% in the corporate or business space and 50% within the education space. Last year, corporates that I was working with were still, particularly within the New Zealand market, where COVID lingered a little bit longer in the consciousness than it did internationally. Corporates were hesitant or slow to begin building events and, and to engaging speakers to, to come in and present. So I leaned really heavily into uh, the school market and really enjoyed the opportunity to, to work with young people, really actively engaged with schools to try and to tap into networks and to, to grow business within New Zealand. So that's been a big part of the change with the last 12 months for me as well but yeah massively positive changes I'm, I'm very very grateful for uh for how last year went and for how this year's shaping up your face lights up every time we talk about a live audience how good was it when you walked into a room the first time the balance that i've got now for our business model is we'll launch live now some of the work we're doing globally it is still done virtual we found a nice blend launching to get the corridor conversation you don't have that in chat rooms online it's just not quite the same then shifting to online that allows me to be here in sydney spend time with my family who have been saying lately you're never home or is during covid when are you going? You <laughs> can't yeah, find that yeah. plan, right? But then I don't sure. even have to wear pants when you do the virtual. So that's a, a, a <laughs> model that I've found works really well. Do the big events and then roll people into your online programs, your digital resources, and, and then doing some of those touch points virtually. I've found that, that that's one of the big learnings that we've had, mate, out of COVID is doing the production. So in the podcast room here, we're doing nowhere near as much virtual, but we're still doing, I'm still doing a lot of group coaching. That's where I've found a really nice blend. Whereas in the past, all of that follow-on work from a keynote would have also been on a plane. So I find our productivity has gone way up. You know, the amount of work we're doing has gone way up, but I'm not traveling as much. So that has been a really nice outcome that I've seen from COVID. Also, it's, it's really forced us to digitize and We've got a total different revenue model now with licensing. Mm, yeah. And I mean, that's uh, at, at the core of that, I think, is something which, as we said before, has been the biggest change off the back of COVID for people is just reevaluating re that work life balance. And a big part of that has been, you know, remote working and digital engagement. And that throws up a whole, a whole new list of challenges for businesses and organisations and around how to continue engagement with employees and ensure that they remain part of the community and, and feel part of the team. But I think, you know, on the whole, it's been a really positive shift for a lot of people. And the conversations which I have with people off the back of COVID, people generally seem to be uh, a lot happier uh, off the back of the last two years with their work-life balance than they were beforehand. 
Take us back to 2015. You, you speak so articulately. I've, I've seen you speak about this so many times before, but is it surreal actually going back to that moment? Like, is there a, is there a difference between, and not that you do, but you know, pressing play and telling the story and actually living the story? Absolutely. It's quite fascinating to uh, look back on it within my own head because increasingly with time, there's certainly more and more of a disconnect between me as I am now and, and the me that has been sharing the story for the past couple of years and the me that was actually there in, in the heat of the battle. And it becomes, yeah, it becomes increasingly difficult to kind of reconcile that as time has moved on. But when I look back on that now, I think I, I experience the same level of disconnect that probably anyone experiences when they look back on themselves as an 18-year-old. And I guess what what contributes to that as well is that at the time I was so significantly unwell and, and on so many strong medications that the memory around that time isn't particularly clear and, and some of it is quite obscured and fuzzy. But the moments which, uh, which are quite vivid in my memory uh, yeah, still very much stand out to me. And that speech. I wrote a speech. And then a week before I was due to deliver that speech tonight, they said, you've got cancer. They said, if you don't get any treatment within the next three weeks, you're going to die. And then they told me that I wouldn't be here tonight to deliver that speech. But luckily, that speech isn't about what's to come. It's about what an amazing year it's been. And you didn't really expect me to write a whole other speech from my hospital bed, did you? So it started like this. If I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Bernard of Chartres compared us to dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. He pointed out that we see more and further than our predecessors, not because we have keener vision, nor greater height, but because we are lifted up and borne upon their gigantic stature and knowledge. Thank you, Christchurch Boys High School, for the height that you offer to us. Tēnā katoa. Good evening, everyone. My name is Jake Bailey, and I'm Senior Monitor of 2015. Did you rehearse that, or did you just get up and, and come from the heart? It's, um, yeah, no, I... So the speech itself was actually written by and large prior to the diagnosis, which is a little bit odd in some ways. And, and certainly a lot of the messages which were within the speech became a lot more poignant and relevant after the diagnosis. So I guess in some ways it's yeah, reassuring to know that I was on the right track even, even prior to the diagnosis. But I do, yeah, I do vividly remember rehearsing the speech and that was that was in the days and nights leading up to when I was expected to be able to deliver it. And I remember rehearsing it one night and so many of the messages within the speech had, had previously been around, you know, moving forwards into the future and, and me and my schoolmates progressing out into, into the real world, into life. And I do remember laying in bed one night, sort of silently crying to myself as I, as I read those messages, thinking to myself, you know, how times have changed in a sense that these messages may not be so relevant for me uh, now. But it was something which, you know, I, um, I felt incredibly indebted to the school to have had the opportunity to lead them. And I felt that I really owed it to those young men who had put their trust and faith in me to lead them for that year. I really owed it to them to finish the year as strong as I'd started. So you were school it. captain in that year? 
Yeah, so school a school captain is what you Aussies call it, and and I think most schools back in New Zealand refer to it as a head boy, but our school referred to it as a senior monitor, uh, which is like a, a senior prefect or head prefect. So, yeah, I'd, I'd been senior monitor for that year, and and it was a job which I uh, yeah I, I had felt I had a huge debt of gratitude to repay to repay the school that had put their trust in me. So something uh, else guess, that's huge is at eighteen years of age, you're told you've got potentially two weeks to live. I can't imagine, Jake, what ran through your head. Like, I can't imagine how you woke up and, and reframed. Yeah. Like, how, how do you yeah. move forward? And can you go back to what did you feel or did you not feel? Was it quite numb? It's really, yeah, it's quite an interesting question. And it's a, a, a painfully boring answer, really. And it's one of the questions which I get asked most often, I think it's something which really fascinates people about my experiences. Yeah, the, the psychological experience of going through it more so than the physical one. And I guess at the time uh, when I was told, you know, without without treatment, you have two weeks to live. And even with treatment, you don't necessarily have a, a guarantee of life either way. The response was just really um, not what you would expect in terms of uh, anger or sadness or fear uh, or hurt or any of these negative emotions. It was really just a sense of I mean, this is the situation that we found ourselves in now and, and I think we've just got to do all that we can, which is really just to get on with it at this point. Uh, so I've, I felt probably more than anything else, the main emotion was a sense of determination to begin this process because there was an understanding that, you know, there was only going to be one way through it. Um, you're not going to go over it. You're not going to go under it. You have to go through it. So I think I was yeah, quite, quite determined to get, get stuck into it as quick as possible. I like how you brought the lyrics of going on a bear hunt into that. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's it's a piece of literature which has really stuck with me through through my life. I think, um, <laughs> and and actually, I say that I say that being facetious, but it actually does have some some fantastic fantastic lessons to abide by within it. I'm back to reading that book, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's exactly oh, what you did. Were it you is. always a really calm, considered kid? Were you like that from a young age, or has has your experience with cancer changed you or has it just given you more perspective, more gratitude, more wisdom? I th yeah, I mean, I the experience has certainly changed me and altered me significantly, but I think that it probably it probably hasn't changed that, that, that particular part. I think I was a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a kind of a dorky kid really in the sense that I would rather sit with the, the adults and, and hang out with them rather than hang out with other kids. I didn't necessarily feel like I... I fitted in a lot of the time, and I think that came from a sense of not not some kind of superiority complex, but I just sort of felt that that I, I wasn't, yeah, I, I didn't quite fit in with within within you know that that, that young person's world. So, but I, yeah, I guess that that's always been there, but certainly the experience itself has has changed me indescribably and changed who I am as a person uh, forever. In what way? Jeez, I mean, we could we could fill the whole podcast with it, really. But I guess the most crucial things are just an outlook and, a, and an approach to to everything, really, to life, to to myself, to the people around me, to uh, to every day and every opportunity that you get. And you know, my experience isn't a very it isn't a very uncommon one, I suppose. And given that you know, half of 
half of all Australians will experience cancer at some point in their life. And I think that anyone that has been through that experience or anyone that has seen a loved one go through that experience will understand that kind of change that I that I mentioned. So I'm fortunate in a sense that I don't have to really put words to it because it, it is, it's, it's an indescribable factor. But uh, I guess the bottom line is that it's, it's made me a better person. Uh, it's made me a happier person. It's made me a kinder person. And I'm in, incredibly indescribably grateful for, for having had that experience and having gone through it because mm. it's, it's been a positive change. Uh, you can put your faith in the doctors and you can put your faith in being optimistic and trying to you know, go around it. You can't go through it or you can spiral down. It's In psychology, we call it broaden and build theory. You know, you spiral up or spiral out, broaden and build, or you can definitely spiral down. Did you Google back then and, and um, see what was mm, happening? Yeah, no, I, I I didn't. I felt very well informed by the the doctors and the, and the medical professionals that I was working with, but you know, if I if I, <laughs> I I guess in a sense that there was no there was no curiosity which came with it because all of the information which I'd been given by the doctors was uh, was pretty severe to to begin with. So my treatment that I went through was referred to as salvage protocol, like that is that is the actual name of it. And and in a medical event when doctors are referring to to salvaging you, uh, you know that that's not necessarily I going don't to be. Think there's much no. left to the imagination <laughs> on that is there? Jake? That's not a great sign and I was aware you know from the outset that that Burkitt's was the the fastest growing cancer known to man and that it was capable of doubling in size or the tumors could double in size every 24 hours so I mean once, once you're sort of once you're educated uh, about that there's not really a whole lot more that you can that you can learn or, or desire to learn about it so yeah I didn't I didn't have that that sense of yeah, longing to, to seek out more information. And I'm curious to know, when you speak about this or when you write about it, what you're doing with the school program, which I've got some really, some big questions for you in a moment as well. I love that you're now impacting youth. Well, you've been impacting youth since you were young, but now you're you know, in your early 20s, <laughs> having a much more, I, I think you can say you're impacting your, your cohort. But when you get up and speak about your story, is it draining? Do you, do you, do you live it? Do you feel it? Or can you almost detach now and it's your story and you can craft a message and alerting to other people? I think, I don't think that there's a, yeah, it's not a drain first first and foremost. It, it isn't draining and it hasn't really ever been either. And I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why that is because I know that so many other people have so much emotion attached to their experiences or similar experiences to what I've been through that it does have a really negative impact on them sharing that. I, I guess for me, when I look at, at my story, I see solely the positives in, the, in their experience virtually. And that isn't necessarily a, a, a trick of mindset either. I just genuinely feel that there was so much more positive within my experience of cancer than there was negative. And even within, you know, the, the hospital ward where I spent all my time and in the room where I had all my chemotherapy and, and all my treatment, there are so many more positive and happy, fun memories within that place than there are negative ones. And I think that I've just been really fortunate going through that experience to have had some amazing people alongside me, whether they be, you know, the nurses and doctors or, or family and friends who have really shaped and crafted my experience of going through that time it would have been significantly difficult without them and their support. So for that reason, there isn't actually 
any negative emotion attached to my experience of cancer. I, I don't feel any type of way apart, about it apart from yeah, gratitude. And, and I look back on it with sort of perhaps the rose-tinted glasses, but certainly uh, this, this glowing positive perspective that maybe other people look back on their time as uni students or, or high school students or falling in love with, with their husband or wife. I just, I look back on it and it's, uh, it provides a, a whole a whole bunch of really positive memories, which we sort of still sit around and, and joke about and, and bring up and talk about as, as a family or as a group of friends. I'm going to ask you a question. There's a simple answer, yes or no. No pause. You've just got to answer whatever sure. comes into your mind straight away. Absolutely. Do you realise how impactful the presentations you have are? Uh, <laughs> yes or no? Uh, I, I think yes. And and I guess the, and then the reason I ask to you, I'm just interrupting you because you, you, you're eloquent, you're humble. I've been in your presentation a couple of years ago at the Tour de Cure Snowball. And I get goosebumps thinking about it now. It was moving. It was emotion-provoking, thought-provoking, humble. Uh, it, was, it was just it was one of the best presentations I've seen, and I've seen a lot of presentations over the years. And did, I just wanted to know, do you realise the power that getting up on stage has on other people's lives? I, I, I suppose certainly at the point when you saw that presentation, I don't think I did... I don't think I did realise. And certainly throughout my experience, even from the outset of the first speech that went viral, I've always been blown away by the impact that my words have, have had on other people. Um, but more than that, I've been blown away by the impact that their reciprocal words have had on me. So I think what has really shown me, shown me how much of an impact has had on other people is uh, their willingness to open up and, and to share their own stories. And, and after presentations, I, you know, meet with people and, and they come and talk to me and they say, you know, my son or my daughter uh, is going through cancer right now or has passed away from cancer. And I've had audience members come up to me and say, tell me that they had been diagnosed with cancer themselves the day prior and they hadn't even found it within themselves to tell their husbands yet. And, and the first person they felt that they could tell about their diagnosis was was me. And, and I guess if anything has shown me the impact that, that I've been fortunate enough to have on other people through sharing that story, it's the amazing stories which people have shared uh, have shared in kind to me as, as, as a reciprocal moment. And I think that is really what has been so special for me about having this opportunity and this blessing to be able to go and share, to share my story with people. And one of the first people you did share that experience with as an 18-year-old is your girlfriend, Jemima. Uh, tell her I said hello, lovely Jemima. I will. Because you told her just after you, or you just met before you were diagnosed, is that correct? Yeah, I think I'd have to look back. I think we were, we'd been going out for less than two weeks uh, at the time that I was diagnosed and, and she was 17 and I was 18. So it was hardly like a, you know, we weren't in a, in a, committed long-term relationship where you'd be expecting a partner to stand by your side and support you. It was actually the polar opposite to that. So what did you say to her when you were diagnosed? Well, I, I called her into, into the room. And as I said, I was on some quite strong medication at the time. So I decided that the best way to go about this is to say to Jemima, the doctors know what's wrong with me, but I don't think I should tell you. And Jemima took a, a different view on whether that was the right thing to say or not. She said, I think you probably should tell me. 
And so I told her that I had Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And according to her rendition of this story, I actually neglected to mention the fact that it was a form of cancer. She sort of had to, to deduce that from, from the atmosphere of the room uh, more than anything that I'd said specifically. So I, t- I told her about what the situation was and, and basically what it boiled down to was I, I said, it's going to get really messy really fast and that's that's not fair on you. That's not what you signed up for two weeks ago or ten days ago. You know, you have you have a life, you have exams coming up, you have an athletics season coming up. What you need to do is you need to run for the hills and, and I won't blame you for that. Uh, and no one is going to blame you for that, but you just need to, to get out of here because um, things are going to go downhill really quite quickly from this point onwards. And I'll never forget, it was, it was the most powerful moment I've experienced in my life, but she just sat there and, and said, no, we'll, we'll get through this together. And we never, never said anything else on, on the subject after that. That was, that was the final word and it was, it was decided just like that. And yeah, I mean, if there is anything within my story that, that makes me, that brings any emotion up from the cancer experience, it is, it is that, that kind of indescribable courage and bravery from her and also the support and care that I had from other people around me in that time. I think that is, that is really what has moved me so much about. I could hear the waver in your voice then when you're talking about Jemima. <laughs> I thought I'd described it, uh, disguised it quite well. It's uh, it's, it's funny. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a beautiful story and it's a story you think people are going to have in their 60s or 70s or 80s, you know, stay with me. Yeah. We've been together for 40 or 50 years. Mm. We've been together for 10 days. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're teenagers. It's, <laughs> yeah. Talk about a fast track emotion roller coaster ride growing up mm. overnight. And do you, mm. on that, do you, do you think that you both missed anything because you had to grow up and evolve so quick or do you just think you've gained so much? I, I don't, yeah, I don't think we missed anything. Jemima was always even, and it was what drew me to her in part, was she was always very intelligent and, and mature and emotionally mature and intelligent. So if there was anyone that was going to be capable of, of withstanding that kind of incoming storm and steering it down without flinching, it was always going to be her. And I don't, I don't think we would lost anything but if we did it's certainly been outweighed 50 times over by the gain which we made and you know people would, would pay for for such a strong and stable foundation upon which to build a relationship and there's really nothing more that that could have created a, a better um, a better yeah foundation to build upon from from the outset and I mean even from I think, yeah, what creates relationships is that, you know, vulnerability creates trust and trust creates connection. And this process that we, we went through very rapidly was I was extremely vulnerable, extremely quickly, and, and even things not only physically fragile, but things like, you know, losing all your hair within uh, a week of, of, of the a week of diagnosis. So within a couple of weeks of a relationship, losing my eyebrows, my eyelashes, losing 15 kgs. I mean, I was the most physically uh, 
the, the most physically disturbing to look at really that I would ever be throughout our relationship and the kind of yeah, vulnerability that that creates within you, but also just being so reliant upon her. I, I couldn't, I couldn't go out or, or take her any places. I, I had to have her come and visit me while I just lay in bed incredibly unwell. And, and that vulnerability did create trust incredibly quickly. And that trust created an incredibly strong bond and connection. So you know your I think, words when you talk about Jemima and you just did the compassion and love, you know you're melting women's and men's <laughs> and children's and then any mammal watching or listening to this, you're going to have an impact on them, Jake Bailey. The next question is a two-parter, Jake. The first bit is what is so important about building resilience? And the second part, you really do spend a lot of your time and I can see the passion you have around working with school children on resilience. Why have you chosen this? So the underlying principle is that, and, and I'd be interested to see if you agree, is that resilience is effectively the most significant factor in how successful someone's life is, uh, but also in their perception of, of how good their life has been. So it's far more significant, it's far more you know, important that you are able to be resilient than to be born rich, intelligent, lucky, if you want to, to, to bring that into it, even in terms of health. I think it's far more important to have the skill of resilience. And it's a, it's a bold statement, but it's, it's quite easy to, to provide evidence for because often the people that you find that are happiest in life are not the ones who have had the easiest lives. They're not, they're not people that have kind of skated through without having any significant adversity which they've had to face. In fact, on the contrary, often it's the people who have faced the most significant adversity that have the happiest, as they would define it, I suppose, life on a day-to-day basis. Basis. And the reason for that is that they've had their opportunity to, to craft and hone their skill of resilience. Unfortunately for young people, the, often for, for, for most people in life, the first opportunity they have to develop the skill of resilience is when they face their first significant adversity in life. And the reason it's a focus on young people is simply that I think teenagers are, that's really the age when uh, people or young people begin to face adult real world problems without necessarily having that adult and real world experience to to cope and deal with them. So the underlying principle, you know, it's, it's a, a hypothesis of what could we do? What positive change could we create for a whole generation if we could provide young people with the skills to overcome adversity before they face it? And the reality is there are there are very definite uh, skills and, and tools and tips which people can apply to adversity to to come through it with a more a successful outcome or to be able to overcome that. And you know these these are backed by psychologists. These are tools and tips which they use, which don't really filter through to our young people because you know it's all very well for a guidance counsellor to stand up in assembly and give a few a few words of advice, but it needs to be a young person presenting this content. We need it to be getting through to that target audience and have it tailored in, in, in a way which is uh, something which they really understand and relate with. So, so yeah, what, what can we give? My, my thoughts on it, it's a big thumbs up. And I'm going to ask you a controversial question, but my thoughts first, resilience is connected to the word strive. My business is called Strive from the French word estrave, which means to push through and come out the other side. And you are spot on. I was just digitally high-fiving you. It's the struggle or overcoming struggle. It's the challenge. It's the grit 
know, it's that passion and perseverance that Angela Duckworth talks about that creates scar tissue. So having gone through cancer, you're a stronger, more robust person. You've, you've got resources to draw from. So, and you're really like getting really excited now because you're touching on self-efficacy, Albert Bandura's self-efficacy, which is the construct where you have the power to influence your world, not, not you know, it's someone else's fault. And, and that's what we see with a lot of kids, right? So here's the controversial, potentially controversial question. Do you think we should be giving ribbons to kids that come 10th or participation awards? No, of course not. And I mean, and I, good I, answer. Let's continue I, the interview. Is that a controversial opinion? I mean, I, I I will endeavor to 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 keep repeating that answer in all the circles I can until it's not a controversial opinion anymore. Because how does that go at some schools though? Because there are a, a a bunch of teachers that have been educated in that philosophy as well. Not 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 all. I'm not stereotyping, but you know, and often that's influenced by parents. How do you it's go certainly influenced like by parents, and I suppose when you look at it, it's quite a natural desire for parents to try and avoid their their young people facing suffering or adversity. But like I said, I mean, if and if that is the case, if we really remove all of these micro uh, situations of adversity from a young person's life, the first time that they face something which is you know goes wrong for them, the first time they face significant adversity, they come up against the biggest hurdle as their very first hurdle. They haven't come tenth and 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 felt pretty poorly about themselves. The first time something goes wrong is when you know mum mum gets cancer and mum dies, and you know dad can't fix that, mum can't fix that. Sure, they could fix you. Come 10th place and they could give you a ribbon. But if you haven't had the opportunity to face these small challenges and and to learn and train yourself to be more resilient by those situations, then when you come across the the real real life scenarios, you are just set up to have a catastrophic failure. Um, And I mean, there's nothing really more I can can say on that other than to, to and rob children of their opportunity to face adversity by themselves is the greatest disservice that you can possibly do to a young person because you are almost certainly setting them up for, if not significant failure throughout their life, then significantly more suffering than they would have to go through otherwise. It's hard for me to not think and feel, so not just cognitive, but it's visceral. You feel blessed to have been taught resilience at a young age. Mm-hmm. So when you got to your big challenge at that stage at 18, you had developed a set of skills. You probably didn't even know you realised. What taught you resilience? Who taught you resilience as a young kid? I mean, all all common boring stuff, I suppose, at the end of the day, whether that was my my parents splitting up when I was young or, or grandparents passing away or, you know, seeing my grandmother pass away from cancer herself just a year before I was diagnosed. I think it's all pretty, you know, real world kind of stuff. But these this is a training ground for life. I mean, these are the times in which you should be uh, aiming to, to equip yourself with the skills which will hold you in in greater stead because you know your parents splitting up is tough but you going through a divorce is tougher and uh, your grandmother dying is tough but your mother dying is tougher so these are the times when you really need to be learning to to sit with the the uncomfortable feelings and I think that's really what it comes down to in part as well it's it's learning that sometimes in life 
there are situations which you know you can't escape from. Sometimes things uh, go wrong, and, and there's no way to fix that, and there's no way to take away how that feels. Oh, sometimes you just have to sit there and, and live with that, that that suffering, and and really, as the the U.S. military puts it, embrace the suck, which just you know lean into that adversity and and to to train your body that it's not necessarily something to to run away from or, or try and escape. And I guess in some ways there's a lot of parallels between uh, physical fit. And, and exercise, which I'm sure you've considered in terms of learning to sit with the hurt and sit with the suffering that also exists within developing resilience for life. Uh, absolutely. I think the two are very, very much connected. And, and oh, interesting yes. when you talk about embracing the SARC, one of the other studies that Martin Seligman actually did with US military a few years ago, we know about post-traumatic distress uh, PTSD, which is now correctly, it's been changed to post-traumatic stress, not calling it a disorder, but there's post-traumatic growth. So it's stress mm. inoculation, little bits of stress, and then what's really important is some time to recover. And then little bits of stress and time to recover leads to this post-traumatic growth. Yeah, ab- absolutely there is. And I guess it's something which came to, this is something which came to the forefront of my mind. Only only the last couple of days I've been reading the life story of Jemima's grandfather, who was an incredibly successful businessman back in New Zealand. He was an all black as well and just an all around great guy. And as I sat and I read through this man's life story, there were so many incidents of immense adversity and suffering and, and, and loss and really difficult, difficult situations which he'd been through. And I, you know, this is, you know, 75 pages maybe. And and as I got to the end of it, I, I stepped away from it. And I thought to myself, out of all of those situations, which he lived within for a prolonged period of, of time and suffering and, and extended situations of adversity, there was always something which he came out into in the other side, at which point it, it ended, you know, this concept of this too shall pass. And I love that mm. Hebrew proverb. It's one of my favourite ones too. This too shall pass. Mm. But when you get in the thick of it, everything's spinning, everything's evolving around you. It is hard to look long, long, long horizon, which is why I love one of your terms, micro-achievement or mm. like little micro-steps. So can you explain, first of all, what it is? And, and secondly, how did, you, how did you come to that? Yeah, so, so micro-ambition is the concept of yeah, I mean, it's it's being done a million times now, I think, and people talk about, you know, becoming 1% better every day and other variations on it. But I guess the idea of being micro-ambitious is the realisation that many goals, if you look at them as their entirety, are going to be impossible to achieve. And I guess my realization of this was during my treatment when I came to to the realization that if I looked at the 100 days of chemotherapy that lay ahead of me, all of the terrible medical procedures which I was going to go through and, and all of the uh, the suffering which was going to be part of that experience, it would have seemed like a mountain that was impossible to conquer. And so within that time, my focus just became really centered on getting through today's chemotherapy and willfully disregarding the fact that there was more chemotherapy coming tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that as well because you know if you take too broad of a view on on these situations or on on adversity in general I think you're really setting yourself up for failure so 
yeah, part, part of overcoming that is is being micro ambitious and, and biting off small chunks at a time. Chunks is actually the correct terminology because I talk often about the concept of chunking, which is just breaking up a situation, a goal uh, or a adversity into smaller, smaller bits and pieces and getting through it as you can, whether it's a week at a time, a day at a time. Sometimes for me in hospital, when things were at their worst, it was an hour at a time or a minute at a time. And I mean, that's another thing, which, which it's a, so many parallels where it's applicable in sport and endurance sport as well but I think yeah if if you set yourself you set yourself up for failure if you look at adversity on on a a very wide angle uh, lens you're an optimist it it comes out talking to you in the time I've spent with you it just shows it red radiates from you there'll be some people watching this who aren't optimists and they'll go yeah sure Jake, it's all right for you. But if someone is more of a pessimist, and we talk about attribution style, so pessimistic, it's pervasive, it's permanent, and it's personal. How would you apply some of the lessons you've got, some of your life lessons, some of your optimism to someone who's really struggling right now? Yeah, I think I think when it comes to a pessimist, pessimism or, or even an, an adversity which is as pervasive throughout the entirety of, of society and the world as was what we're facing now, I think you really have to centre it around things or any of the things which aren't affected by it. And I guess for me, that will always come back to uh, the people around me that I love and care about and, and my family and my friends. I think at the, at the times or the points in which things get toughest in life for me, what I always end up coming back to is the fact that there are still these people around me. And, and that's not to say that, you know, these other sufferings or failures which I'm facing in life aren't significant and don't affect me. But I guess it's always, it no matter how bad things are, it always comes back to the fact that, you know, I've still got this behind me. And it's not, you know, the, that kind of advice, it's not, it's not something novel or new. It's not groundbreaking. It, it's not even that really in, inspiring. But if I'm going to be entirely honest, for me, with all of my experience and all of my understanding about resilience and overcoming adversity and, and all of the people I've met and spoken to, that is still just really what it entirely comes back to for me is that no matter how bad things are today, there's still going to be uh, my family and, and people that I care about and love there tomorrow. Mm. Who are the biggest influences on you as a leader or in leadership? It could be a person, it could be a course you've done, it could be a quote or a movie. What, what has had a real impact on you? Leadership, I mean, certainly the, the, the quote, which will always be leadership for me is a quote by Teddy Roosevelt in a speech. And I actually quoted it in the speech that I gave at my school, which went viral. It's, it's a speech. I mean, if you look at the quote, the quote will be uh, most easily found by Googling the man in the arena. And if I try and try and think of it off the top of my head, then it, it sort of revolves around the fact that it is not the critic who counts, uh, not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, uh, who knows the the great striving and effort, who, who valiantly strives towards a goal. 
And, and what it boils down to is It wasn't that a bad effort just on recall, by the way. Yeah. I, I'm still going. I'm just, my, my favourite part is actually the idea that by striving or by having having aimed to achieve the goal, then you your soul will never belong with those cold and timid souls that know neither victory nor defeat. And I think for me, yeah, leadership is, is certainly, as, as it says, about the idea of being willing to put yourself out there and, and being able to, as there will always be, criticism but being able to to overlook that and and to know that, that the position you've put yourself in is, is a noble one in the sense that if you try and do your best then you have done better than any of your critics the next question is a tough one especially in the world we live because we can adapt and change and evolve so quickly that as a frame what what do you think you'll be doing in five years time sure uh what would i like to be doing i mean i would love to Continue. I mean, the, the bottom line is, I'd love to continue to to help people, and I, I have seen, as I said, through the work that I've done, that there have been some people who have been uh, significantly positively impacted by the work that I've done. And I guess the bottom line is that even f- to to have helped one person makes makes that work worthwhile. And so, as long as I believe that I have the capacity to continue to help people. Uh, in some way, then I will continue to do so. And I don't see myself as as a messiah or, or anyone's saviour or anyone's guru. And I, I really detest the fact that within our industry, even there are so many people who are, you know, self-appointed heroes. And to be to be blatantly honest, are you I, one of those motivation speakers? Do you get people walking on? Is that what you do, Jake? Like, I, so I do just, we go to the event and do we break the plank? Do we walk on the hot coals? <laughs> do I buy the online audio program? I'm starting to sound like you know power and passion. Yeah. So it's not what you said. You, Tony out. Robbins, is that you? Um, <laughs> I didn't mention I, um, any names. I just it was just oh, the, that's, the that's accent fine. came we, in. There. We can bleep that out. That's easy. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's not the angle I, I come at it from, obviously, and it's it. It gets to the point where I often feel not embarrassed, but hesitant to explain to people that I do public speaking for work because that certainly works for some people. But I think within the New Zealand and Australia as well, that's not who we are and that's not what we want. And it's certainly not what I am or what I do. And so when I, when I, talk about wanting to continue to help people. I don't come at it from that angle, but I come at it from an angle that, you know, a teacher or a nurse or or anyone who works in a profession where they want to positively impact someone and that's their guy. I come at it from the very same level as they do, not not as though I I feel like I have so much to offer to the world. You you impact a lot. And I was winding you up. I, I know your stance on the so-called motivation guy. That, that was called a plant, Jake. Um, that was, it was, it was beautifully done. <laughs> There's got to be a book in there. Is there a book in the wings? There's, I mean, so yeah, there was a book which was released about my my story more broadly back in, in 2017 called What Cancer Taught Me. And you, you're very right that there is, there is a book in there for young people focused around teaching them resilience. And you're, you're very right that there, there might be I one in the feel wings like right now. I've just, I, I wanted to interject before and I thought, no, no, I'll let it run out. I'll let it run out. And when <laughs> I said a book and you lit up, I thought, ha, ah, maybe he's not allowed <laughs> to tell me. Maybe I've unearthed something. You, you've read me very well, and yeah, you've read the situation very well. But there will be there'll be something in the works, and there is yeah, there is something in the works, and there will be something in 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 the ethereal existence in the future. So 
yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Jake, as always, every time we catch up, I get energized, but I learn new bits about you. I would not have thought you would have said that you found it harder going through COVID than going through your cancer treatment. We've had great discussions today about resilience. We've had great discussions about your real passion, which is helping youth, empowering youth. And interesting, right, that you got through cancer, and I'm still processing that, and then you found COVID really hard. So it just shows that we need that constant iOS upgrade, don't we? It's not like, hey, here's some mental skills. Now set and forget. You've got to constantly come back and upgrade. Otherwise, it does catch you. You've got a really good self-awareness, though. You, you have an awareness about you and the world around you, which then leads to self-regulation. So I'm getting into primary coaching psychology. Self-awareness is knowing what to do. Self-regulation is actually doing it. And I see you get that dance beautifully. Is there a question in preparation for today's discussion? You're thinking he'll probably ask me this and have I not asked you that question? So is there a question you'd like me to ask you? Or the flip, is there a question you'd like to ask me? Then we're going to do the performance intelligence baker's dozen. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd love to flip it back on you and and to to ask a question to you. I'd be really interested to see, obviously, my work and and the space that I'm in is specifically tied to resilience, and that's my real passion and focus. I'm really interested to see the trends that you've seen in terms of resilience with the clients and the corporates, organisations, the individuals that you've worked with over the past year, the impact that I guess guess the disruption of the pandemic has had on, on their resilience. Do you think that it's had... I guess, a net improvement or a net negative impact over that time? Oh, good question, young man. This could be a long answer. Put the stopwatch on Wizard, I might get into a rant here. <laughs> uh, resilience, I look at there's three types. There's individual. I think there's team and there's organisational resilience. What COVID taught us is people weren't training or they weren't doing the right mental skills to help them with adversity in their life. We saw that when everyone was shifted to WFH to start with. Some did okay, some totally languished and were struggling, most were somewhere in between. But that change with COVID was forced upon us. Yeah? When you have time to prepare for change, it could be a new job, you're relocating, change in relationship, having kids, all that. When it happens, we've had time to prepare. COVID was just ripped out underneath us. You know, The control we had about where we worked and what we could do outside. And in New Zealand, you know, one of the outside Melbourne, I think the most locked down city was Auckland. What I've learned from that is you've got to help people prepare for what might be around the corner and you don't even know what that is. So I've actually taken the word mental toughness out of my vocabulary, Jake, uh, when I'm working with athletes, especially footballers I work with, some of the boxers and other athletes. Yeah, I want them to be tough at times, but I want flexibility. I want that mental flexibility. So it's the yin and the yang. So there's time to flex and there's time to, to recharge and rebalance and connect with emotions. So that's one of the big lessons I've had is, is not just, yeah, it's, let's go William Wallace, but they won't take our freedom. Yeah, there's times you've got to charge, but there's times where you've got to have that balance. The other part that I really look at with people on this as well is future-proofing and not just sitting there and coasting and going, yeah, it's all going awesome. Everyone's watching the YouTube, Facebook videos, the book selling, they're watching the documentary, I'm doing keynotes, and what's next? So I've always been a bit like this, but I'm more so like this in my coaching and the work I'm doing with executives, just building a bit of a buffer 
to, to get ready or to prepare skills for the next two, three, five years. So they're the two big ones, mate, I think I've taken out. It's not mental toughness, it's mental flexibility. There's times you've got to be strong, robust, tough, and there's time you've actually got to lean into your emotions and slow down a bit and connect and feel. You know, But when you're growing up in country New Zealand or country Australia, New South Wales, you don't talk about your feelings. Harden up, mate. You know? So it's, it's getting that blend. And it is just creating a little bit of a buffer for the skill set and for where you are, that little bit of a buffer. Who knows when you go over and you're meeting with 300 of the brightest leaders where that takes you. And then when those opportunities come, you just run through that door. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. Jake Bailey, I'm going to ask you 13 questions. He's taking a mm-hmm. big breath in. Are you nervous about this, are you? <laughs> it's I not- am a little bit nervous about it because I um, – yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go. It's not an exam, um, there's, there's no, Yeah, exactly. I was going to say there's no wrong answers, but, you know, maybe there are. We'll wait and see. Or if there are, we're going to take off millions of viewers on your, on your statistics. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Bailey, Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. Your first question is your favourite song or band? So that, that, this is a great example of where there is a wrong answer because the thing is, I'm, I'm 25. The generational gap between us is is massive. Any of the music which I listen to, you will have never heard of, and if you listen to it, you'll probably think it's abysmal. Are you still? <laughs> are you just, only 25? Oh God, I thought yeah, I'm, you were. I'm, I'm 25. Oh God, yeah, you are. Yeah, you could be my son. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Answer the question before I fall off this chair. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, as I say, no, young people aren't renowned for having good taste in music, at least in the eyes of uh, eyes of generations uh, older and more wise. And, but I'm a fan of an artist called Kendrick Lamar, who I think many people will have heard of. He's increasingly uh, recognised within the mainstream sort of sector now. So Kendrick Lamar is probably one of my favourite artists that would come to mind, absolutely. Favourite movie? Another one, which is a tough one to answer. I've got to say off the bat, I'm not a huge movie guy. Uh, I'm not sure what goes on. I don't seem to have the attention span for movies, but I'm a big fan of some Tarantino stuff. And Django Unchained definitely comes to mind when I think of movies that I've really enjoyed. Favourite book? Favourite book? Another one. It's it's a tough one to answer, and there are so many different books that I love for so many different reasons. The first, the first answer that comes to mind for me a book which I read quite recently by a very well-known author, Johan Hari, who I'm sure you will have heard of before, who's done some amazing writing in uh, the mental illness and mental health space in terms of focus most recently. But he wrote a book about about drug addiction, about addiction full stop, and about the drug war called Chasing the Scream, which was a book which is certainly probably the book which has had the greatest impact on me and, and shifted some of those I guess, preconceived notions that I had around the ideas of uh, mental illness, drug addiction, uh, and the drug war. It's a challenging read, but something which has really stuck with me and which I highly recommend to people. Hearing your answers so far and the narrowing down, the difficulty in narrowing down, how many books do you read at one time? Do you read four or five on the go at one time? Because you wouldn't just read one book. <laughs> so I, when I say read a book and, and my, my partner, she's very, very precise about me um, making this clear. I When I say I read a lot of books, I read very few books. I listen to a lot of books. I listened, I tried to do 52 books in 52 weeks last year and managed to do about 60 books last year because I love listening to books when I'm, uh, you know, just driving, cooking, shopping, everything. I always have a podcast or, or a book going on. 
uh, in terms of how many I have going at a time, I've got about six that sit on my bedside table in physical copy, get very, very little use. And then I tend to listen to one one audio book um, at a time pretty solidly. So yeah, I, I try and I try and get through them one at a time. That's for sure. Question number four: Your favourite possession? It's a bit of a story behind this one. I'm hoping these aren't meant to be rapid fire questions because I've really bastardised that format if, if it's meant to be that. My favourite possession is a mug that I've got. It's a pretty stock standard kind of mug. It has got a teddy bear holding a heart on it, and it says. And it says on a heart of gold. And originally when I first got this mug, the heart that the teddy bear was holding was was gold. It's it's lived a long life and been through the dishwasher many times since then. So now it's it's a little bit faded. Uh, and it's it's a well-worn mug. You can sort of certainly see it's someone's favorite mug when you look at it. Uh, the story behind the mug is that a few years ago now, I was really privileged and fortunate to have the opportunity to support a young man called Kane through uh, his experience of cancer. Kane was 10 years old when he was diagnosed with the same form of cancer that that I had Burkitt's and Hodgkin's lymphoma and his family were put in touch with me um, through yeah, through the small networks of, of Christchurch. I met with Kane and his family and and we're really privileged to walk alongside them for, for Kane's journey. And he was really lucky to go into remission uh, towards the end of the year. His goal was to get home in time for Christmas. And he was announced in remission at the start of December. Unfortunately, on the uh, 23rd of December or thereabouts, just before Christmas, Kane began to develop some symptoms. He was taken back into hospital when they found that Kane had, had relapsed, his cancer had come back. And with it being such a fast growing and aggressive form of cancer, uh, things were pretty dire pretty quickly. He was uh, hopefully going to be a candidate for a bone marrow transplant. And then unfortunately, there were no suitable donors that were found. Uh, all of the alternative treatments which they tried were unsuccessful. And unfortunately, Kane passed away in March of that year. And he comes from the most amazing family with this incredible mum whose name is Dee. The week after Kane passed away, I caught up with with Dee, and she gave me uh, she gave me this mug uh, and and a card to to thank me for being involved with their family throughout that time. And that mug for me, the reason that this mug is my uh, undoubtedly my most valuable possession on this earth is that every time I drink out of that mug, it reminds me just how lucky and and, and fortunate that I am to have the opportunity to uh, to be here on that day. It's one of those things which I think for many of us to have a routine or a pattern around sitting with a you know a hot drink and just thinking about life, pondering more deeply. And certainly for me, I, I grab my cup of coffee and I go stand on the balcony and, and look out at the world and just feel grateful for the fact that unlike some other people who have walked the same path that I have, I'm, I'm still here and have the opportunity to go out and to live my life to the fullest on behalf of them, uh, given that they're not able to to go and chase those dreams and goals and ambitions anymore. So my, my most valuable position, my favorite position is, uh, is a mug. That's a beautiful story. It's a sad story. You can see the redness in my eyes and your eyes as you say that. How do you process that? Because you must have some moments where you go, gosh, that could have been me. I didn't have any of those moments until uh, pretty late in the piece, really. It's, it was quite interesting going through my cancer and and going through it as a teenager, I was uh, pretty naive and oblivious to, um, to, to to the risks that I'd faced, really. I never really had any doubt that I was going to beat my cancer and survive. I never doubted that my cancer wasn't going to come back. And that wasn't any you know, positive mindset or, or deliberate stoicism on my part. It was truly just being 10 foot tall and bulletproof like all 20-year-old guys are. In other words, just being, just being naive. 
um, or foolish in that regard. And my realizations around how fortunate I, I had been actually came um, with another involvement that I had with a family uh, going through a, a similar form of cancer that I had uh, the year before Kane. It was a teenage guy and there were some, some extraordinarily parallel, extraordinary parallels between our stories. He was also in his final year of high school when he was diagnosed. He was also in a leadership role. Uh, we, we were very, very similar and diagnosed with uh, the same or a very similar form of cancer. And again, to cut a to cut a long story short, and, and his his outcome was the opposite of what mine was. And it was the first time that I had the opportunity to look at our two stories side by side and to say, you know, our paths were completely the same. We followed precisely the same trajectory right up until the part that his story uh, veered off and, and ended differently. And I think it took for me to have those two side-by-side -side comparisons to look at a mirror version of, of myself uh, and my own story and to see that it could have had a different outcome to really come to terms with that myself. In terms of how you do come to terms with that, I'm not sure. You, you just try and go on and do the best that you can on behalf of those people who don't have the opportunity to do so anymore. And I don't think there's any more than you can that you can attribute to it than that. Mm. We'll transition to a few easier questions around well-being yeah, and productivity. Sure. Hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent. I do love this on the performance intelligence Baker's does, and while it just seems thirteen rapid-fire questions, more and more we're seeing Jake that the format on this really puts some conversation pieces, and you pull on that red thread. So I, I, I love your openness, and, and I love the compassion that you show. So an easier question, number six: What time do you wake up and go to bed each day? So I am really, and it'll be a bit of a common theme here, I think, around performance-related questions. I'm really fortunate that my partner, she's a, a really high-level 800-meter runner, and as a result of that, her lifestyle is pretty prescriptive around doing the right things um, effectively. So when I am with her, I'm really good at going to bed around 9.30 or, or before 10 o'clock every night and waking up pretty consistently at, at around the same time every morning. It will depend on whether I'm trying training or not, if, I, if I'm training, if I've got to get a long ride or a long run in, I'll maybe get up at five. Otherwise, I'm perfectly happy to get up at, at 7.30 or eight. But I, I can certainly see that when I away for work and when I travel, it, it shows me just how much uh, I, I have to thank my girlfriend for bringing that sense of um, stability and, and, and prescriptivity to, to our, our patterns around, around sleeping and rest, because I'm not so good at it when I'm, when I'm by myself, that's for sure. What time has Jemima got an 800 metre down to? Uh, she ran a new PB only three days ago, three or four days ago now, which is 2.08.28, I think, off the top of my head. So Ooh, it's coming certainly down. quicker than I could do it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And what's a New Zealand A and B qualifier for representative teams? Fast, fast. So New Zealand's qualifiers A and B are generally faster than Australia's qualifiers for the same event. Uh, we could really get into the detail around that, but unfortunately, New Zealand athletics doesn't back and, and fund athletes in the same way that Australian athletics does. So for for Gem, she'd be looking in the, the low two minute or around the two minute mark, but a 208 puts her at, she's the sixth fastest in New Zealand uh, this year. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty solid result and it's part of her pathway towards where she's going. Question number seven, your morning routine. Definitely have a really strong morning routine. And my morning is, uh, the morning is my favorite part of the day, without a doubt. When I get up, I'll make breakfast, I'll make a smoothie, I'll make a coffee. And for me and Jim, it's really an opportunity to sit and spend some time together in the morning. 
sit and chat and have a conversation, open up the balcony door. When I keep referring to the balcony, it sort of makes it sound like I live in some kind of opulent mansion. I live in a very, very small apartment. Don't don't try and get the idea that I'm- um, He opens the balcony my- door, his, his maid comes in, <laughs> does the yeah, bed, the personal yeah. chef brings in the omelette and the freshly squeezed juice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, you've got exactly the idea of what it's like. No, it's- um. I open the balcony door to try and make the apartment feel a little bit less claustrophobic is probably it, but it's lovely on the Gold Coast to be able to, to open the balcony door and, and let some sunshine in, let some fresh air in, and it's always a warm morning on the Gold Coast. So I love sitting there and just soaking in, in, in life really and enjoying that. One thing which I would note on that in terms of morning routine is that for me, because of a lot of my my work and my um communications and in terms of my work is with New Zealand. When I wake up, depending on the time of year and daylight savings, I'm either two hours or three hours behind the ball. Uh, if I get up and, and I finish my morning routine and I'm sitting there having breakfast at 8am, it's nearly midday in New Zealand for a lot of the year. And so there is that pressure and expectation for me to immediately get up, to jump on the laptop and to start doing emails. But I'm really, really deliberately avoid doing that as much as possible. I think a morning routine, or at least having a part of the day uh, where you can take some time for yourself and, and for your partner as well, preferably, is incredibly important. So despite the fact that it puts me on the back foot in, in terms of getting into work, I'm, I'm very deliberate about yeah, taking some time in the mornings and having that morning routine. Question eight, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? And again, I mean, I I can't hold myself up as as a, you know, the, the, the perfect example in this regard. My fitness routine varies significantly throughout the course of the year. And I would love for it to be a lot more consistent than it is. It's just not the way that it's been for me in recent years. So I do, obviously, with our work with, with Tour de Cure and the involvement that we've had together in terms of being involved with, with long bike rides with Tour de Cure, I also do um, endurance running or ultra running. So depending on the time of year, depending on whether I'm training for an event or not, my fitness routine can look like yeah, sort of up to 10 hours a week of, of training easily. Uh, and then unfortunately for a lot of the rest of the time, it, it's not as active and engaged. And I don't remain as involved in, in sport and training as I would like to. That's probably one of the big things which I need to work on and improve is just bringing consistency to my training and exercise regime instead of having these extremes out both ends. Um, but I, I certainly really enjoy it and, and, and am passionate about remaining fit and healthy. I can certainly tell, as I think anyone that's ever exercised for an extended period of time can, um, that it has a massive impact on my my mental health and my well-being. And you're in your 20s, so you need to just walk by a jeep, look at a bike, and you get buffed and your VO2 max goes <laughs> up. Come and see me, young guy, when you're in your 30s and 40s, and we're going to get you in the gym lifting more, and we'll start doing a bit of yoga. But this is your Baker's Dozen, not mine. So let's get on to question number nine. Tell me a go-to productivity tip. Yeah, so that's a good question. And I mean, if, if I feel like every productivity tip's been uncovered just about, and, and they're so individualized and, and they're so um, yeah, so personalized to different people. But for me, I always find that my productivity is greatest when I can uh, break down a task which I have to achieve into a series of, and a really logical series of subtasks, which I have to undertake and undergo. Um, making lists and, and putting plans in place uh, is, is the big thing which enables me to get things done. Without that, it would be a bit of a bit of chaos, and I, I doubt very much would get achieved. I'm very much someone who who writes down yeah, a to do list and, and the order of of tasks which I have to to to, to, to go through. Yeah. Question ten: Your most vivid childhood memory. 
So this was a great question. This one really had me pondering. Uh, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think that a lot of the things which stand out to me from my childhood, as you might expect, really, and as, as I suppose would probably be the same for a lot of people, were the times when bad things happened. It was the adversity which I faced as a young person. And I don't want to make that sound like something bleak or negative, because I think for me, it was the absolute opposite. I think it was the first times in my life when I had the opportunity to learn that, yeah, things can go wrong. And then there's still the ability to bounce back, to recover and to overcome those challenges. Um, so the things which stand, yeah, the things which stand out to me about my childhood were, you know, my parents getting divorced or, or you know, Nana dying, um, these things which are pretty run-of-the-mill stock standard kinds of adversity. But the first time in my life when I had the opportunity to learn that it was possible to go through something bad, uh, to still have a good outcome and to be left a better person as a result of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to look back and be able to uh, to be able to identify those, those patterns. Question 11, the biggest adversity you faced and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so I mean, the easy the easy go to answer, I suppose, would be as we've talked about, whether it's um, whether it's the cancer or, or whether it's COVID. Um, but instead of instead of going for two of those most obvious ones, I, I, one which really jumps out to me was that off the back of my uh, my treatment, my chemotherapy, uh, I was left with a condition called peripheral neuropathy. It effectively meant that I was in a wheelchair uh, or on two crutches for a number of months at the end of my treatment. What happens is much like in a spinal cord injury, the messages don't get through from the brain to the legs because of a, a traumatic injury. Uh, in my case, the chemotherapy attacked the, the nerves inside my body. And as a result of that uh, damage to the nerves, which occurred, the messages would not get through or they'd get through a scrambled or incorrect or delayed order. Effectively, my legs wouldn't do what they were being told to. And that was, yeah, it was the toughest part of my experience of cancer or my treatment, um, undoubtedly. I vividly recall uh, being in the car with mum driving me to uh, something called the Burwood Spinal Unit in Christchurch to undergo some physical therapy to, to try and learn to walk again. And we pulled up at the lights outside of school and I looked over and I saw uh, a bunch of young guys on the basketball courts just shooting hoops, just playing, being social, having fun. I remember looking at them and thinking, you know, wistfully, not not um, you know, not not begrudgingly, but just thinking, I don't think any of these young guys, nor would I have known a year a year earlier than now, I don't think any of these young guys know just how lucky they are to be able to have these basics and to be able to do something as simple as go and shoot hoops with their mates down at the basketball courts. And so for me, losing some of that independence, uh, losing that ability to do something which I'd taken so much for granted, which is just you know, ha have the freedom that comes with walking around or being able to go places with ease uh, was a big learning and, and a big piece of, uh, yeah, a big piece of understanding which came for me from from that experience of cancer. And I try and retain that gratitude, um, yeah, since that day onwards. 12. What achievement or achievements are you most proud of? Yeah, and it's funny, as we talked about at the start, I mean, it's the most sort of anti-Kiwi mindset question that you can get. You don't <laughs> you don't go out touting your own achievements and what you're proud I'm of having done. I'm taunting Kiwis who live all over the world now with this question and I love it. <laughs> you are you certainly are. You're a you're a threat to our uh, national identity, I think, the way that you're removing this from our psyche. Um 
Yeah, I think the thing which I'm uh, most proud of having achieved and the thing which I'm most excited about is just the uh, the impact and reach that I've been able to have over the past seven years now. I mean, I've worked with nearly 80,000 people from incredibly wide range of different backgrounds and countries and cultures around the globe, um, ranging from you know prisoners to Fortune 500 CEOs to professional sports players uh, to kids in little outback towns in the middle of nowhere. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is, I guess, the diversity and range of the reach that I've had over the past couple of years. It's been such a privilege and such an honour. And question 13, what is your definition of high performance? It's another great question. And it's one which made me really think. It's not one that I've pondered or considered before. I think for me, what is important um, in life, and it's such a cliche, I guess, what is important to me in life is happiness. And I think what underpins that pretty kind of cheesy concept is that I think for most people, happiness comes from connection and comes from uh, belonging to a group of people. So I think for me, high performance is being able to do what you love. It's being able to do it in a way which benefits yourself and other people around you. And it means being able to be happy as a result of that. I think true high performance means uh, that you are in a good space, that you're helping other people and benefiting other people, uh, and that you belong to something, that you have a sense of connection to something bigger than yourself. Well, you are certainly in a good space, you are certainly having an impact on other people. And for those listening on the podcast or watching on our YouTube channel, how can people connect with you and they can either watch, read, listen, download, share the Jake Bailey experience? Where's the best place to find you online? Sure. I think the best place to start is probably just my website, jakebailey.co.nz. You'll find everything in there in terms of yeah, information about me, my work, what I've done, what I do, and how to get in touch with me as well. Love for people to reach out and just have a chat if they had any questions they wanted to ask or any conversations which, which they wanted to have. I'd be yeah, more than happy to, to hear from people. As always, love our conversations. Actually, there's one part of today I don't like. What do you reckon that is? There's a part that I'm still <laughs> processing. Is it the fact that my fringe in the background is making a very aggravating noise that the wizard's probably picked up on and has probably uh, got his head in his hands right now? No, not at all. Uh, and a bit of language coming up, ladies and gents. So if kids are in the car, turn it down. It's fuck you. Fuck you for being 25 and being so articulate, so sorted, having all your stuff together. I, I, I love seeing you evolve. I, I love our connection and I'm looking forward to cycling uh, next holidays. A couple of weeks, I'm at mum and dad's. We're all going up and you and I are going to get out on the bike while the sun's coming up and then we won't go to your balcony. We'll go to a coffee shop nearby and we can talk <laughs> about life. I, I love seeing your journey, mate. And I do I really, really see the difference you make. I see the humility and I can see you growing into something a little bit bigger and I'm enjoying pushing you there a little bit as well. 100% and I appreciate that as well. We always have the uh, the best chats and so I appreciate the opportunity to come in and have a conversation with you here as well, mate. Uh, we'll talk soon. All the best. In Lycra. Cheers. Hi again, it's Andrew and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite or purchasing one of the books I've written, including Matchfit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM Edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, 
go to andrewmay.com and we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.